John this morning. John chapter 1, verse 19, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 28. John chapter 1. And let me remind you that this is the very inspired word of the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then, he said to, then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And continuing in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we are so thankful that you have revealed the wondrous mystery of the coming Messiah, your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we read today the testimony of John the Baptist, may we likewise testify to the wondrous mystery, the coming King, the Messiah, who comes to save his people from their sins. May we testify to the gospel. May you fill every heart in this room with your gospel this morning. We ask these things in the name of your glorious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The title of today's sermon is The Testimony or The Witness. A good witness, a good testimony is one that provides an accurate testimony. A, a good witness does not talk about himself on the witness stand. He does not regale the court with his own deeds or his own exploits. He does not draw unnecessary attention to himself. If he references himself at all, it's only so that he might better explain the facts that he witnessed. His focus is on the truth, not stoking his own pride. A good witness accurately and succinctly provides truthful testimony about the facts of the case. This is the duty of a good witness. And in our passage this morning, we see the testimony of John the Baptist. John is a good witness. He provides crucial testimony that points us to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the coming king. If John was asked to share the gospel, do you know who he wouldn't focus on? Himself, John, correct. No, he would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, far too many today do not follow the example of John. When asked to provide a summary of the gospel, many professing believers are unable to do so. Well, truthfully, if I asked you today, explain to me the gospel in five minutes or less, could you do so? Now, if I asked you to explain the rules of football or tell me about your kids or tell me about your work, I'm sure we all could give those answers. I'm sure we all could provide testimony concerning those matters. But could you explain the gospel of Christ? Our passage today centers on the authority of Christ and demonstrates how to be a good witness to the gospel. In our text this morning, the Jewish leaders asked John the Baptist a series of three questions. Who, what, and why? And these three questions will serve as the basis for our outline of the passage, acting as the three main points of the sermon. In John 1, 19 through 28, the testimony of John should help you live a life that points others to Christ. So before we begin asking these three questions and answering them, who, what, and why, we must first set the context of the passage by focusing on the beginning of verse 19. 
The author writes that the following account is the testimony of John the Baptist. And this occurs on the first day of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. We've been reading through John, and now we're, we're getting a slight change. We're now going to the narrative of Jesus' public ministry. And this is the first day of the first week of that public ministry. So the very beginning. And next week, Pastor Chris will be looking at the second day uh, when he goes in and starts in, in verse 29. Now, we've already seen John been introduced in this passage, starting back in verse 6 of John chapter 1. If you just look back to verse 6 and verses 6 through 8, we read the following. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, I'd like to highlight three words in these verses. In verse 7, notice the word witness, and then notice the word testify. And go down to verse 8, and you're going to again see the word testify. Scroll down to verse 15, which Pastor Chris preached last week, and you will notice the word testified in relation to John. And these words all come from the same root Greek word, martyreo, from which we derive our English word martyr. Now, what is a martyr? Martyr is someone who provides the ultimate testimony. He's someone who lays down his life on behalf of his testimony. Now, if you look back to our text this morning, we see this word once again at the beginning of verse 19. The overarching purpose of this passage is the witness or the testimony of John the Baptist. That is what the author wants you as the reader to understand. This testimony is set in the context of the questions from the religious leaders of Israel. And before we get to their questions, we must understand the context of these questions first. Verse 19 tells us the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, to ask John. So the Jews in this context describes the Jewish leaders. In a different context, the, the word Jews can mean either the ethnic Israelites or, or maybe the Israelites live, living in the region of Judea. But in this context, it speaks of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the ruling council in Jerusalem. And, and this text tells us that these delegates that came to John came from Jerusalem. They came from the Sanhedrin. Now, who are the Sanhedrin? Well, they were comprised of about 71 members who were a mix of former high priests, elders of Israel, scribes, and religious experts, and they were led by the current high priest of Israel. Now, this body, this, the Sanhedrin, they sent a delegation of priests and Levites who operated under their authority. And the Sanhedrin exercised authority over all spiritual matters in Israel. They were the, the shepherds of Israel, if you were. And by sending a delegation to John the Baptist, the council was using this authority to see who John was, what his message was, what he was preaching, and why he was exercising authority. Notice who, what, and why. They wanted to determine if he was a threat to their power. Now, John the Baptist is quite familiar with these people. As Pastor Chris so helpfully described when he preached on verses 6 through 9 several weeks ago, John's father was who? Zechariah. He was a priest. Right? We read in Luke 1 verse 5, Zechariah had been a priest who was serving in the temple. And John's mother was a Levite. So coming from such a family, John the Baptist would have been familiar with the beliefs and customs of the priesthood. And thus understood the reasons for their questions. And as Pastor Chris also helpfully pointed out from Matthew 3, 7, how does John describe these people? Brood of vipers. I mean, he, he understands their heart. He understands where they're coming from. So with this context in mind, let's explore the first question that is posed by the priests and the Levites. Who? Who are you? And this question is so critical to our own testimony and to our identity as Christians. Our first question and our first point is this, who? And the answer to this question is what? It is, I am not. I am not. Who are you? And the answer is, I am not. If you remember, when Pastor Chris preached from John 1, 8, one of the main takeaways was that John was not the light. He was only testifying to the light. Now we get to verse 20, and in response to the question, who are you, posed in verse 19, well, how does John reply? Look down and at verse 20, it's, he says, 
This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Notice the beginning of verse 20. John confessed and did not deny and confessed. John's confession demonstrates an eagerness to answer their questions in the negative. By saying that he did not deny, John did not yield to the temptation to keep the focus on him, on his identity. No, he emphatically states, I am not the Christ. Now the word Christ in Greek means the anointed one. In the context of first century Judaism, it meant the Messiah. The Sanhedrin, indeed all of Israel, are desperately looking towards the coming Messiah. Now remember the political context of Israel during the first century. Part of the promised land is ruled by a bunch of foreign kings, the Herodians, who were Edomites. They were, they were related to Israel, but descendants not of Jacob, but of Esau. And they're foreigners, and they're ruling over part of Israel. But really, they're only puppet kings for the superpower that is the Roman Empire. And Rome rules the region of Judea, where Jerusalem is located. And the Jews are desperately looking for a political messiah to come free them from the, roke, the yoke of Roman rule and usher in the Messianic kingdom kingdom. And this longing for deliverance, this longing for rest is not limited to first century Judaism or indeed Israel at all. If you remember when Duane just read from, from Genesis chapter five, Lamech names his son Noah. Well, what does Noah mean? Rest. rest. Very, yes. Very good. Five points to, to the man in the back. Rest. Absolutely. Yes. He passes the quiz. You didn't know there's a quiz at the end, but we'll get to that. No. Noah is, it means rest. Genesis 5, 29. Lamech hopes that this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. So Lamech hopes that Noah would be the promised one, the Messiah that was promised to Eve in Genesis chapter three. Yet Noah is not the Messiah. Neither was John the Baptist. John is quite emphatic that he is not the long-awaited Messiah, perhaps to the disappointment of the Jewish delegation. So undeterred, the priests and Levites ask him in verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? And you can almost hear the impatience seeping through the text. I mean, if you're not the Christ, then, then who are you? Are, are you Elijah? And now for those wondering why the priests would ask John if he was an Old Testament prophet, we need to understand the words of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. So turn back with me to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Of course, we know that Malachi is the last book in your Old Testament. He wrote it after the Jewish return from Babylonian exile and before the 400 years of silence where God does not send new revelation to his people, the intertestament period. And in Malachi chapter 4, there's a prophecy concerning Israel. Familiar, quite familiar to the first century Jews. So look with me, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And we're going to read 5 through 6. And this is the end of the prophecy. Verse 5, behold, pay attention, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The Jews understood that before the Messiah came to exercise his authority, Elijah would come to preach repentance and revival in Israel. Now we remember that Elijah did not die. He had been taken up to heaven in that fiery chariot, the chariot of fire at the conclusion of his prophetic ministry. Similar to what we read in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Enoch did not die. He was walking along one day and strolled right into heaven. God took him. In a similar manner, hallelujah, absolutely. And we all look forward to that hope ourselves, do we not? Similar to Enoch, Elijah is taken up. He does not die. He's taken up into heaven. And so because Elijah did not die, just like Enoch, the Jews are looking for Elijah's return. Even today, when the Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they leave an empty seat at the table in preparation or in expectation that Elijah will come and pass over and feast with them. So going back to verse 21 of our main text in John, 
John the Baptist responds to their question, are you Elijah, with three words, I am not. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second, well, doesn't Jesus identify John the Baptist as Elijah in Matthew chapter 11, 14? And if you're thinking that, five points to you, you are correct. Jesus does identify John as Elijah. However, John is not the literal Elijah. He's not Elijah reincarnate. The angel tells Zechariah, John's father, in Luke 1.17, that John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John is a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. There's an already and not yet theme which runs throughout the New Testament, and we see this theme here in our text as well. So keep this thought in your mind. It will come up again when we get down to verse 23 of our main text. John denies that he is literally Elijah. So that prompts another question. Are you the prophet? So who is the prophet of whom the, the Jews speak? Well, he's referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15 through 18, and I won't have you turn there for time. But there, Moses declares in verse 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and shall listen to him. And then just a few verses later in verse 18, the Lord proclaims to Moses, the Lord says, I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So here we see the idea of God sending a prophet like Moses who will speak the words of the Lord to his people. And during the time of Jesus, the Jews had two different views about who this prophet would be. They either distinguished this prophet as someone separate from the Messiah or they identified him as the Messiah. And it is this second view that is correct. Peter in Acts chapter 3 Stephen in Acts chapter 7, both apply Deuteronomy 18 to Christ. The prophet who will be like Moses is the Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18 verse 18, the Lord says to Moses that the prophet will be a, from among your countrymen like you. Well, how is this prophet like Moses? Well, Moses led his people out of physical captivity, freeing them from the slavery of Egypt. So too, Christ leads his people out of spiritual captivity redeeming them from the slavery of sin. The religious leaders heard John's message about repentance and about forgiveness. They saw, as Pastor Chris mentioned the other week, that John came dressed like a prophet, eating like a prophet, preaching like a prophet. So they assumed, hey, this has got to be the prophet. But John dashes their hopes very quickly, doesn't he? Notice his terse response in verse 21. And he answered, no. Please note the progression of John's answers. He goes from five-word answer, I am not the Christ, to a three-word answer, I am not, to a one-word answer, no. Why? Because John doesn't want to talk about himself. His identity is not important. He is merely the messenger pointing to Christ. He is not the Christ. His identity does not matter. And if you are a believer today, our first point of application applies to you. When you are bearing witness for Christ, when you are testifying to the gospel, your identity does not matter. It is the identity of Christ that reigns supreme. I am not. Pastor Chris emphasized this phrase three weeks ago. Notice that John never identifies himself during this exchange. He could have said, you know, who are you? Well, I'm John, the son of Zechariah, the priest. An angel actually spoke to my dad. The Holy Spirit came on me when I was in the womb. I mean, look what God has done in my life. But he doesn't do that, does he? And I'm going to say this gently. But there's a common misconception in evangelical circles that has sadly gone unchallenged for far too long. It's common in modern-day evangelicalism to give your testimony. When asked to share the gospel... A common response is to give your testimony. We've all been there. When someone goes up to give their testimony, and 90% of it begins with the words, I, me, and mine. Who's in focus? Now, please hear me. I'm not trying to downplay the testimony of what God has done in your life. But your testimony is not the gospel. It points to the gospel. Notice the difference. How does Mark begin his book? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Matthew 24.14, Jesus calls it the gospel of the kingdom. Paul, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, describes the gospel as, quote, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
How about Romans 1? Paul declares that he has been set apart for the gospel of himself. No, the gospel of God. Verse 9, the apostle reinforces that he is preaching the gospel of his son. Romans 15, 19, Paul says that he has fully preached the gospel of Christ. And we can go on and on and on. But I trust the point is clear. The gospel is not your testimony. And if the only thing you do is share your testimony, you're not sharing the gospel. The focus of the gospel is not on you. It's on Christ. The focus of John's testimony was not on John. It was on Christ. Salvation's primary purpose is to glorify God, not benefit you. In 1855, Charles Spurgeon delivered a sermon entitled, Preach the Gospel. That was the title of his sermon. And in it, he exclaimed this, quote, I asked, what is it to preach the gospel? I answer, to preach the gospel is to exalt Jesus Christ, unquote. Spurgeon recognized the true focus of gospel proclamation is Christ. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that you should not or cannot use the testimony of what God has done in your life as an example of a transformed life. You should do that. That is an effective illustration of the gospel's power. However, the primary tool in your toolkit should not be your testimony. It cannot be the emphasis of your witness. Your emphasis must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, some might say, well, what about the person who's a new believer? They don't know the Bible very well, so all they can do is share their testimony. Folks, if someone can't share the gospel of Christ, that means they don't know the gospel. If they don't know the gospel, then they're not truly a believer in the gospel. If you are a believer, that means you have heard the gospel, understood the gospel, and submitted yourself to the gospel. And that means you can explain the gospel to others. New believer, young believer. doesn't matter if you're older or one of the teens in the back. If you are a believer, you should be able to explain the gospel. doesn't mean it has to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to be some great theologian. When Peter shares the gospel at Pentecost, 3,000 souls come to know Christ. This is only 50 days after Peter has denied Jesus. Peter saw more converts in one day than Jesus did in his entire earthly ministry. I mean, remember, only 500 people were with Jesus at his ascension. And we can all know and we can all agree that Peter might have been a great preacher, but he was not Jesus Christ. He was not the preacher that Christ was. So it's not about our eloquence. Peter wasn't eloquent. It's about faithfully proclaiming the gospel and letting the spirit of God convict its hearers. Our identity does not matter. Our witness matters. Our gospel testimony matters. Now let me speak directly to the members of this church, Church of the Canyons. What's our testimony going to be? Is it going to be about us or is it going to be about Jesus Christ? Are we going to continue to prioritize the gospel as this church has done so faithfully over its history? Are we going to do that? Or are we going to follow the example of so many other churches who have rejected the gospel for that which is not the gospel and instead place the focus on themselves? And think about, I mean, we just heard the missionary letter from the Stuckies where they asked people, invite one unsaved person a week to the church. Share your, the gospel with one person a week. Imagine if we started doing that. And I know many of you do. I, I was talking to someone the other day. They were in Vons and they went up to their cash register and they're like, oh, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? Imagine if we all started doing that. When asked, who are you? We must respond with, I am not. So our first question is who? Our second question is what? And as we will soon see, you can probably put where next to what. So what slash where. Let's read John 1, 22 through 23. Read together John chapter 1, 22 through 23. Who are you, the, the priest and Levites say, so that we might give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So the delegation has exhausted all their presuppositions about John's identity. So they switch ta tactics and they say, what is your testimony? They have to give a report to their bosses, the Sanhedrin, and they can't go back and say, well, he's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. We don't really know anything else about him, though. That's all uh, we can just answer. He's not this. They needed to find out what John is doing out preaching in the deserts of Israel. And John responds to this question, what do you have to say about yourself, by quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. 
Now, interestingly, all four of the gospel writers point back to Isaiah 43 when describing John the Baptist. And if you remember, Pastor Chris mentioned that John's gospel is 90% different than the other gospels. Yet, it records this point just like the other gospels. That means we should probably pay attention that, hey, John is emphasizing this. Right? Everything else is, most everything else is different in the gospel, but this is just the same as the other gospels. He's emphasizing Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So we have to investigate why, why is he doing this? And it's critical that we go back to Isaiah because Isaiah 40, verse 3 speaks of the coming messianic kingdom. And to understand this kingdom context, we need to go back there. So please turn back with me, Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to actually read uh, the first nine verses or so of the chapter because we have to understand the context. Now, as you turn there back to Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, allow me to frame this passage for you. In some regards, Isaiah 40 acts as the turning point in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 39, we read about Hezekiah's sinful pride. Uh, king Hezekiah, he's the king of Israel, and he has pride, and he man- this pride manifests itself with boastfully displaying his wealth to a delegation from a small, unimportant nation called Babylon. Of course, you remember that the Lord has just healed Hezekiah from a disease and destroyed the besieging Assyrian army. And at this time, it was Assyria, not Babylon, that is the world's superpower. So Hezekiah, Hezekiah has these uh, diplomats from Babylon. It's a small nation at the time under the rule of Assyria come and he shows them the wealth of his court and of the temple. And because of this pride, God promises future final judgment for Israel and exile for Judah for their repeated sinfulness. It's the straw that broke the camel's back as it were. And I, in Isaiah 40 verses one through nine, we see a prophetic messianic appearance of Yahweh who comes on the scene to deliver Israel from her captivity and to restore the kingdom. So let's read the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. It begins with these words. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then, verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion. Bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Notice the context, verses 1 and 2. God is comforting his people, who just a chapter earlier in chapter 9 had been promised exile and destruction. The Lord says to speak kindly to Jerusalem, for her warfare has ended, her iniquity has been removed, she has been redeemed from her sins. How does this happen? Verse 3 tells us, foreshadowing the work of John. Look at verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. In the ancient world, when a king was coming, the messenger would go on ahead and announce his arrival. Furthermore, the king's slaves would actually go ahead and smooth out the road to ensure that the king had a smooth ride. They would literally go ahead and remove stones from the road, throwing them to the side of the road, smooth out the road so that the king had a straight and smooth passage. So when John says that he is making straight the way of the Lord, he's literally doing this in a spiritual sense. John is the messenger. John is the voice calling out. Now, the voice is nameless. The identity of the messenger is unimportant. What is his message? What is he saying that is important? That's what's important. Not the who, the what. And what is this message? Well, John doesn't record it in John 1.23, but the Jews certainly would have understand the context surrounding Isaiah 40, verse 3. In Isaiah 40, verse 4, we see the meaning of the message. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. 
the Lord Yahweh will reveal his glory. We know that this speaks of the coming king, Jesus Christ, the glory of the Lord. This verse proclaims the glory of Christ, the king who comes from the wilderness as described in verse 3. Now the wilderness here is both physical and spiritual. As we will see in, in John chapter 1, 28, John the Baptist is preaching across the Jordan in the wilderness. He's fulfilling the physical description, yet Israel is also in a spiritual wilderness where there is no gospel fruit being produced. Israel has rejected God and has been in a spiritual exile ever since. And the king is coming to rectify that situation, to harvest spiritual fruit for himself. The coming of the king proves that salvation is of the Lord. Now, Isaiah contrasts the glory of Yahweh to the sinfulness of man. Verse 6 tells us that all flesh is as grass. The Lord blows his breath of wrath upon man and man fades like the dry grass. And we here in Southern California understand this concept all too well, don't we? I mean, after the June gloom leaves, the hot desert wind picks up, the green grass just shrivels up and dies. And although man may fade, God's word stands forever. And we are a church that stands firmly on the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. And the word of our God stands forever, including his word to deliver Israel. And that is the message that the Lord commands the voice to proclaim. The Lord has not forgotten his promise. He will come as Israel's Messiah, her Redeemer King, to save his people. Notice the last verse, uh, verse 9, Isaiah 49. Get up yourself up to a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the critics of Judah, here is your God. What is the good news, the gospel to be proclaimed? Here is your God, Israel. Salvation is of the Lord. So John is drawing on this theology when he identifies himself as the voice crying in the wilderness. The what, where is this? Yahweh is coming from the wilderness to save and restore his people. And again, the answer to the question, what is the message? It's that Yahweh is coming from the wilderness to save and restore his people. Now let me ask you, did John complete or fulfill this prophecy entirely? No, he was not the complete or total fulfillment of this prophecy. And why is that? Well, look at verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 40. It says, Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. We see this major geographic upheaval. Mountains coming down, valleys raising up. John is the voice proclaiming that this is about to happen. But when Christ came the first time, did we see any of this? No, not really. No. So was the prophecy unfulfilled? Well, no, that's the already, now, and, and yet not yet. John is proclaiming this message, but that didn't happen at Christ's first coming, but it will come at his second coming. When Christ comes back a second time, when his feet are planted on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives, Olives splits in half, we read about this in Zechariah 14, 14, 14, verse 4, then the prophecy will be fulfilled. You see, the kingdom has not yet been established here on earth. Entrance to the kingdom comes through salvation, but the kingdom is still to come when the king, Christ, returns to establish his thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. You wonder why all what's going on in Israel right now? It's because this prophecy has not been fulfilled yet. The Messiah has come once, but he will come again and ultimately fulfill this prophecy. If you want to read more about this, I'm currently reading a, a, a book for pleasure in between my, my seminary studies uh, called He Will Reign Forever, A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God. And it talks about the coming kingdom, and I highly encourage you to read it if you have the time and you want to learn more about this subject. But regardless if you read that or not, I hope that you will see how John is grounding his message in the theology of Isaiah chapter 40 and about the subject of the kingdom and how both passages, Isaiah 40 and John 1, are pointing us to Christ. The application from these two passages for us as believers and as a church is the same application that we saw in our first point. Our job is to be the nameless voice, the one proclaiming the glory of God. We are to go to the tallest mountaintop, the place where everyone can hear us and shout out at the top of our lungs, here is your God. And if you're not a believer this morning, if you've not submitted yourself to the coming king, please listen to me carefully. Salvation is of God. 
It is God who saves you by his work, by his righteousness, and for his glory. If you're lost in the wilderness, like the Israelites, hear the voice of one calling out, turn to Christ and live. The Messiah has come once to save, but he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And your life is like a flower, like the grass before summer. Soon the heat will come and your life will end. Turn to Christ before it's too late. We've examined the first two questions of John. I proposed to John. Who are you? My identity is irrelevant. The gospel is all that matters. What is the gospel? Where is it proclaimed? The gospel is the good news that the king has come into the spiritual wilderness to deliver his people and restore them to the kingdom. Now this leads us to our third and final question, why? Let's go back to John, John chapter 1, verses 28, uh, 24 through 28. John chapter 1, 24 through 28. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, quick observation before we get to our third question. Verse 24 is the first mention of the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. And as I'm sure you all know, the Pharisees play a major role as the primary opposition to Jesus in the book. And for those who might be younger Christians in the room, the Pharisees were a religious organization that emphasized adherence to tradition and customs. They elevated the teachings of the rabbis to on par or even higher than the commands of Scripture. And in their pursuit of keeping the law, they actually ended up breaking God's law. And the Pharisees are a very powerful but unorganized religious group. Now, some of their members are on the Sanhedrin, but they don't have ruling control over the Sanhedrin. They were not the rulers of Jerusalem. Thus, the Pharisees were members of the delegation, not the originators of this delegation, and they would have been sent along with the Levites and the priests. Now, the Pharisees, as I said, are obsessed with tradition, ceremony, and customs. Considering the nature of the third question uh, concerns baptismal ceremony, the question is right in line with what the Pharisees would have cared about the most. Thus, it was the pharisaical members of the delegation likely who asked John the Baptist this question, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, not Elijah, not the prophet? Their question is one of authority. If John is none of these people, why does he baptize? To understand John's answer, we must understand the context of first century baptism in Judea. Baptism during this time is a personal affair, usually a a Jewish proselyte, meaning a Gentile who is converted to Judaism, would would undergo this and would be baptized to symbolize their conversion. However, even ethnic Jews would undergo this ritual to symbolize their commitment to the Lord. However, the baptisms were all done by the individual. No rabbi was going around baptizing people. That is until John the Baptist shows up. So why is John baptizing? Well, because baptism symbolizes repentance. He is not baptizing based on ethnicity, but due to an individual's repentance and faith. If you remember from Matthew chapter 3, 1 and 2, as Chris read a couple weeks ago, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Four verses later, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, Matthew tells us they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So clearly, we see that baptism is a symbol of repentance done in the context of the approaching kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, again, has not yet arrived. It is at hand. It is near. And the baptism is pointing us forward to the kingdom. Baptism, then, then has an eschatological significance, meaning that it points us forward towards the end times, eschatology. This concept wasn't invented by John. We see it actually in several places in the Old Testament. It was prophesied to occur during the restored kingdom. We see it in Ezekiel 36, as well as in Zechariah 13. In Zechariah, Zechariah speaks of the coming messianic kingdom in in chapter 13, verse 1. Again, I'll read it to you just for the sake of time. Zechariah 13, 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. So baptism is done in the context of repentance from sin and a return of the Davidic king. 
in John 1.26, the Baptist declares his authority to baptize with water and is linking his role in announcing this to the coming kingdom, the coming king. Look with me at John 1.26 through 27. John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John's answer to the Pharisees' question, why are you baptizing? What is your authority? Is simple. The king is here. That's my authority. The Pharisees have the authority to question John because he's been sent as a delegation from the Sanhedrin. They have been, that is. But John has the authority to baptize because he has been sent as a delegate from the king of kings. I'm going to do my best Pastor Chris impersonation. Did you catch that? (laughs) The Pharisees have the authority to question John because they have been sent as a delegation from the Sanhedrin. But John has the authority to baptize because he has been sent as a delegate from the king of kings. Sadly, the Jewish leaders did not recognize that the king is standing literally in their midst. Note the end of verse 26. Among you stands one whom you do not know. Jesus has lived in Galilee for 30 years, yet no one recognized him as their king. Now the word know in verse 26 means to recognize. It's a different word than the word know that we read in verse 10 of John. In John 1 verse 10, which we read two weeks ago, it says he was in the world... And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And the word translated as know in verse 10 comes from a different Greek word than what we find in verse 26. In verse 10, it speaks of a a deep, intimate knowledge, a love, as in the manner between a husband and wife. The world did not know Jesus, meaning that they did not love him. In fact, the world hates Jesus. In verse 26, however, the Jewish people, it's not that they didn't love Jesus, although they didn't. They just didn't recognize who he was. Now, by the end of the Gospels, they recognize him, but they've rejected him then as their king, and, and thus they do not know Jesus intimately. But here, they just don't recognize him. So John's role is to announce to the Jewish people that, hey, the king is here. The king has arrived. The king is already standing among you. John's baptism then is grounded in the authority of the king. So Why did John testify of Christ when baptizing? Why do we provide a testimony concerning the gospel? Because the king has come. Now, please listen to me carefully what I'm about to say to you. The who, what, and why have nothing to do with you. They have everything to do with Christ. Your status as his witness does not permit you to focus on yourself. So you and I are nothing but slaves to Christ. Christ. In fact, we're lower than slaves. We're not worthy to be called the slaves of Christ. Look what John says in verse 21, or 27, pardon me. Verse 27, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So let's unpack this verse because it provides us with a lot of critical information about ourselves and about Christ. So sandals and feet are considered unclean by the Jews. Even today, various Middle Eastern cultures view shoes and feet as unclean. Um, When I was in the army and we were given briefs and culture briefs of, hey, if you're going over the Middle East, if you sit down, make sure you don't show the the sole of your feet. That's that's unclean and and that can be viewed as an insult, right? So because of this belief in first century Judea, only slaves would deal with another person's feet or touch their sandals. When a rabbi gathered disciples to himself, The disciples would perform all sorts of different tasks for the rabbi, but the one task they would not do is to loosen his sandals. See, that's the task of a slave. Now, there's an extra-biblical rabbinic saying, and its present form, it dates back to about 250 AD, so about 100, almost 200 years after uh, John's gospel was written, 150 years or so. Uh, But it's probably much older. And this rabbinic saying says, quote, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of his sandal thong, unquote. So it's a slave's job, it's a slave's responsibility to loosen the sandals of his master. But look what John asserts. He says, I'm not even worthy to do this task. The one coming after John, the king, is the one whom John says, the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. See, John has completely submitted himself to the authority of Christ. He knows his proper position in God's economy. He's not even worthy to be called a slave of Christ. Yet the Lord has made John not 
just a slave, the voice crying out in the wilderness. Look at the grace of God in that. Now, if to emphasize the wilderness aspect, verse 28 declares that these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the location is important. These things happened beyond the Jordan, meaning the eastern shore. Bethany is not the same Bethany that's located close to Jerusalem where we, where we read about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This is a different location far to the northeast of Jerusalem across from the Galilee in the wilderness. And verse 28 then points us back to verse 23, which then points us back to Isaiah 40. The emphasis is on Isaiah where we read that all flesh is grass. It fades and it dies. It is created, sustained, and harvested by the sovereign will of Yahweh. See, we're not worthy to even be called slaves of God, yet God uses John and he uses us to act as a voice calling out in the wilderness. We point others to Christ. When asked why, we boldly declare it's because the king is here. The king has come. And that is your purpose as a Christian, to not attain rank or status or position, but to be lower than a slave, to reveal the king to those who do not know him. Now, there might be some in this room today who do not recognize that Jesus is the king who has come and who is coming again to establish his kingdom here on earth. And if you don't know him, please allow me to explain him to you. In fact, any believer in this room should be able to provide testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should be able to go up to any believer in this room if you don't know Christ and ask them, who is Christ? What is the gospel? Now, let me pause briefly from addressing the non-Christians in this room to address those who profess Christ. Under whose authority do you operate today? Are you a slave of Christ? Have you submitted yourself to his lordship? You can't be a Christian if you haven't done so. If you profess Christ, can you explain the gospel to someone who's not a believer? You can certainly use your personal testimony as an illustration of what God has done in your life, that can be a very effective illustration, as we've already mentioned. But the, but the gospel is not about your story. It's about his story. And if your testimony is focused more on your story than his story, that's a problem. And if you cannot explain the gospel, then perhaps you should search your heart to see if the gospel has truly taken root in your heart. Let me close by providing testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ to explain the gospel. This is what we must proclaim when we provide our testimony. Not necessarily the words that I'm going to use, but the subject matter. What is the gospel? See, we preach Christ and him crucified who overcame sin. You see, we have to start with the problem. Our dilemma is this. When God created the world, he put man in the garden, as we've been reading about in Genesis chapter 1 through 5. And he gave that man a command. And he told the man to keep that command in perfect, perpetual obedience and he promised him life if he kept it and death and if, he if he didn't keep it. And Adam, the man, did not keep it. He ate of the tree and sin entered into the world. And because of sin, death entered into the world. And our world became broken because of sin. And every man born of ordinary generation has inherited that sin nature. And there's no good work that we can do to pay for our sin. And we stand guilty before a holy and righteous and just God. And we deserve the wrath of hell for all eternity. That's the bad news. But the good news, the gospel is this. Against that dark backdrop of sin, God in his goodness, in his love, and in his mercy, before the very foundation of the world, the father gave to his son a people. And in love, he chose that people and gave them to his son as a love gift. And then the son in love before the very foundation of the world determined with his father and with the Holy Spirit to come into the world and to redeem that people. Yes, Christ came into the world, not born of ordinary generation, but born of a virgin so that he would not inherit Adam's sin nature. He was born free of sin. He, he lived a perfectly righteous life, keeping all of God's law as the perfect sinless God-man. Truly man and truly God. And then Christ, this perfect man, willingly went to the cross, bearing the sins of his, people, of his people, the just for the unjust. He was not a victim. Christ chose to go to the cross. He bore our sins on the tree. Christ imputes our sin to himself, meaning that he bears the punishment, the just punishment for our sin. And then Christ died bearing the full wrath of God upon that tree so that he might effectually provide salvation for all those who believe. 
And then there's a second imputation whereby Christ's righteousness is then imputed to us, his people. We are justified, declared righteous by God, not by our own works, our own righteousness, but only due to the righteousness of Christ. This is so God can be both the just and the justifier of all those who place faith in Jesus Christ. So that all those who believe might enter into this coming kingdom. So that all those who place faith in Jesus Christ might be justified before God. And not only justified, but sanctified to his glory. Christ rose from the dead, taking captivity captive, breaking the power of death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father so that he might live evermore to intercede for you and I, his people. We're adopted into the family of God, sanctified so that we begin to bear the image of our family. And as we're fashioned more and more into the image of Christ, we are fashioned by the very same gospel that justified us. So that one day... We're not just saved from the penalty of sin via our justification. We're not just saved from the power of sin via our sanctification. But one day we're glorified and we're saved by the, from the very presence of sin. See, that is the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that we read in scripture. It's the gospel that this church proclaims. It's the gospel that has the power to save your soul. That is the gospel that we must proclaim. Who? Who are you? I am not. What is your message? Prepare the way for the Lord. Why do you proclaim the message? Here is your God. The king stands before you. This must be your personal testimony. must be my personal testimony. And it must be the testimony of this church. Let's pray. Father, may our testimony point others to the gospel. May we never focus on ourselves, but as John declares, I am not. Yahweh is coming in the wilderness to save his people. The king is here. And may we seek to glorify you through the proclamation of the gospel. Through our testimony, we may point to you. We may, that may we recognize our position is, is, is only found in you. Our authority, any authority we have comes from you. May we submit ourselves to you as lower than the lowest. And if there's someone here who does not know you, may you convict them. Grant them faith and repentance. For believers, empower them to share the gospel with a passion, knowing that they have been saved from the due penalty of their sin. And it is out of thanksgiving that we proclaim you, the coming King who has come once and will come again. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ.